Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us on the Weekly Standard is Steve Hayes. And Steve, you have a great new editorial about the dumpster fire, as you call it. By the way, I appreciate that reference to the original Shakespeare. The dumpster fire we're having at the presidential level. But you've also been reporting on what's going on with Speaker Paul Ryan, his decision to say, I will not be endorsing Donald Trump at this time. Trump responding, well, I'm not endorsing you either. Steve Hayes, what's going on in Paul Ryan world right now? Yeah, lots of speculation. I think there are two reasons that Paul Ryan did what he did, maybe a third. The first is is a practical political reason, and that is you've got uh, dozens of members of his conference, the House Republican Conference, who don't want to support Donald Trump. And what Paul Ryan did by delaying an endorsement or refusing to endorse at this moment is give them cover. So if there were, you know, if people were beating down a path to Donald Trump's door to endorse him as quickly as possible, including many people who had said that he was a danger to the nation if he ever got uh, into the White House, uh, Ryan is saying that with that could wait. We can slow this down a little bit, and I think you've got a number of people who serve with him in the House of Representatives who are grateful to have that extra time, who didn't want to have to rush to endorse Trump, who didn't want to be pressured, and I think are now a little bit relieved, they can point to Paul Ryan and say, look, I'm following the lead of the speaker here. What else, what are the other benefits from Ryan saying, I'm not ready to endorse at this time? Well, I would say this is more of a cause than a benefit. The other reason to think about with respect to Paul Ryan is, remember, this is a guy who literally staked his career on entitlement reform. You know, he was going to leave Congress back in 2006 when Nancy Pelosi took over. Uh, he was he was pretty much ready to be done with Congress. And, and you know, I talked to him uh, for a profile I wrote a couple of years ago, and he explained how he was in his deer stand uh, back in Wisconsin, thinking about all these things, thinking about his future. And he decided that if he was going to go back to Congress, he was going to try to do something that would really dramatically change the place and address our uh, ever-increasing nas- national debt. And he came up with this plan that was, you know, uh, the path to prosperity originally, then became his entitlement reform plans. And uh, he campaigned on it. And in 2010, the Republican establishment fought him. The, the organs of the Republican Party, the RNC, the National Republican Congressional Committee, fought Ryan and told their candidates, don't sign on to Paul Ryan's entitlement reform plan. Well, Republicans took Congress or took the House. Ryan won. Uh, he passed that in the Republican budget, and it became something that every single member of uh, his party in Congress voted in favor of. So you now have the entire Republican Party or virtually everybody in Congress today on the Republican side who had have voted for this entitlement reform package. And Donald Trump opposes entitlement reform. I mean, he Donald Trump, I think, to be fair to him, has no idea what entitlement reform entails and doesn't really understand what entitlement, what role entitlements play in our national debt. I, I don't agree with uh, you on that but, at all. I'm sorry, Steve, I have to interrupt. Donald Trump has titled many books himself. He's written several. He gave them his own titles. <laughs> and he doesn't know why you need to reform the way we title books. And Have you been to the library? He's been to many libraries. That's, right. That's a good point. It. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it quite that way. I mean, you know, Trump, Trump in his interview with The Washington Post just a few weeks ago said that he could eliminate $20 trillion in debt in eight years without reforming entitlements. I mean, there's a Congressional Budget Office report out in January that says that 72% of our spending in 2026 will come from Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and interest on the national debt. You cannot address our national debt, the growing national debt, without addressing entitlement reform. 
And Donald Trump says he won't do it. He won't touch them. And he beat up Paul Ryan. Remember in 2012 when Ryan was Mitt Romney's running mate, Trump went after Ryan and said it was, uh, you know, he thought he was going to cost him the ticket. Uh, that's why Mitt Romney lost. He opposes these reforms. So there's a principled philosophical objection, I think, that Paul Ryan has to Trump beyond, you know, Trump as a man uh, on what Ryan sees as the single biggest issue. Trump says he won't address it. Well, let me ask you about the pure politics of this. Uh, it's likely that the Republicans will hold on to the House, regardless of what happens with uh, the presidential race. The Senate is in question. So it's very possible that the face of the Republican Party could be Paul Ryan. If you honestly believe that, once again, not speaking preference or ideology or talent, if you just honestly believe that Trump is going to lose and going to lose in a way that's off-putting to a large segment of voters, wouldn't it be smart to be the – doesn't the GOP – wouldn't it be smart to have a non-Trump player on the field – as your escape valve in case things go badly in November? Well, I certainly think so. I'm not sure I agree with your premise. I mean, I think if Hillary Clinton, you know, maintains the, the, the lead that she has today in the real clear politics average of more or less 10 points, I think it's possible that the House does go to the Democrats. But let's just say that you're right, that the scenario you sketched out is, is what we see after November of 2016. I think it's not only important, I think it's imperative for Republicans to have somebody who they can point to who said, I was not part of this. I think that's also the argument, the, the strongest argument, or one of the strongest arguments for those who are considering uh, mounting a third party bid or an independent candidate bid. Now, this is the kind of thing that gets laughed at and scoffed at by the know-it-alls in Washington and the strategists who are now were opposed to Trump before, but are now looking to be paid by Trump now because it's too hard and we can't possibly do it. <clears throat> but even if you started a uh, mounted a third party bid with a credible conservative or center right candidate and ended up losing, I think Trump is going to lose anyway, in all likelihood you have there uh, someplace that serious conservatives, rank and file Republicans, uh, people of good faith who, whose conscience won't allow them to vote for either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump can go, and I think it also would say, post-2016, to the country, look, we're not all buying in on, on his demagoguery. We're not all buying in on his misogyny. Uh, this isn't the way that many Republicans and conservatives think. Well, wait a minute. I thought we all were buying in. I'm watching Reince Priebus buy in. He's the head of the Republican National Committee. I'm watching uh, 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 Governor Rick Perry of Texas, who said some of the most damaging things about Donald Trump when no one else would. He's on board. Bobby Jindal's on board. Uh, it sounds to me like it's just you, me, and Bill Crystal left. <laughs> well, no, look, I think it's no small thing that the Speaker of the House, the, the, the highest elected Republican in the land, I suppose you could argue Mitch McConnell, he, he quickly capitulated. Yeah, but the, the highest profile Republican uh, in, in the country uh, in elective office is not signed on. I think that's not a small deal. And I think you've seen others. Larry Hogan, uh, governor of Maryland, a Republican governor in a blue state with a 66% approval rating, this mm. conservative Republican in a blue state, uh, whose state voted in the Republican primary for Donald Trump, has said he wants nothing to do with it. He doesn't even want to be involved. He's not going to endorse. He's not going to be involved in the campaign, and he's going to focus on Maryland issues. I think you're seeing other conservatives of, of principle stand up and, and say, I'm not going to be a part of this. But you, you're right in identifying the other side of of that, which is you have people who have argued 
persuasively, in my view, that Trump shouldn't be anywhere near the nuclear codes. I mean, that was the argument that Bobby Jindal made. He was erratic. He was a hothead. We can't have somebody like that anywhere near the nuclear codes. And I think Jindal was right to make that argument. I mean, that is the right answer. We don't want Donald Trump near the nuclear codes. But Jindal, with reservations, has said that he will support Donald Trump. Peter King, representative from New York, gave a quote to the New York Times yesterday, something along the lines of, this is a guy who has no idea what's going on, and then said, but I'm supporting him for president. <laughs> I mean, this is people who are Steve. signing on knowing that he's unfit to be president, and they're saying, I'm going to join anyway because he's wearing a red jersey. Uh, who is the the person that signed on already who surprises you the most? Mine is Governor Rick Perry. Um, I've always thought of Governor Rick Perry as a guy who didn't have the national political chops, whatever that skill is. He just didn't. He was one of those like he's kind of like um, you know the college football star Tim Tebow, who was great in college but just wasn't ready for the NFL. But I always thought he was a guy of integrity, and I always admired him for early on, you know, saying the king has no clothes when it comes to Trump, and to see him. Utterly sell it. No reservations at all. I'm going to work hard to campaign for him. Yeah. That's the one that gets me. Who, who else is on your I'm really surprised list? Well, I would say the enthusiasm with which Rick Perry is now endorsing this guy that he previously trashed. I mean, it, it, let's be clear. You know, you often see in a presidential campaign, people say things in the heat of the campaign that they maybe don't mean. And then you have this sort of awkward reconciliation. Right. I think the effect of that is to diminish the the, the uh, politicians in the in the eyes of the voter, but but it happens every year and it's sort of a cycle. What we have today is something entirely different, in my view. I think you have people who made serious, substantive, strong um, objections to Trump because they genuinely thought the man was not fit for office. This was not just campaign rhetoric, and to have them sort of back off and say I'm on the train because because of who he is. Um, you know, viewing this as a, a binary choice. I would say the, the most surprising to me is Marco Rubio. And to be fair to Rubio, he's not, you know, enthusiastic. He's not jumping up and down. He's not, you know, saying he's happy to serve as Trump's vice president. But he, he has now said or reconfirmed that he will vote for the Republican nominee. You remember there was that moment toward the end of his right. campaign when he and Trump were really going at it. And he, he did about an 11-minute press conference. And there was that moment that was played again and again and again, where Rubio was asked, you know, will you still support the nominee? And he, he looked down with clear anguish. I mean, this was he was he was clearly bothered by this. He was emotional about it. And he said, I just really don't know that I can. And it was, I think, you know, this this moment of candor, a moment of honesty, um, because Rubio recognized what Trump was. And to now have him say, you know, even just saying, look, I always said I'll support the nominee and right. supporting the nominee. To have him say he'll do that, I think, is, is surprising and disappointing for a lot of people who followed Rubio. Uh, but that is where we are. One last question for you about your Dumpster Fire editorial. We, we Those of us who uh, read the Weekly Standard, who uh, you know, listen to these podcasts, we're, we we know what how, how bad the fire is here on our side of the aisle. But what about the other side of the aisle? I keep It keeps... Uh, playing in the back of my mind there is something significant about hillary being this far down the road and still losing primaries and she's not losing primaries the way that uh, yeah. obama was losing them in 2008 based on demographics per se i mean she's there's it's people are enthusiastically going out to vote against her inside her own party Correct. I think that's exactly right. And it's a testament to just what, what a horrible candidate she is. And I think in the Democratic Party, the Democratic 
um, primary, what you're seeing is these these two competing um, polls, really. You've got, on the one hand, the anti-establishment poll that's animated the Republican Party, obviously, and, and is animating part of the Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, that that's sort of one dynamic. And on the other hand, you have the strong and traditional pull of incumbency because Hillary Clinton is in effect running for Barack Obama's third term. She's made little, um, you know, she, she's been very clear that that's her objective. And look, I think that's a reason that, you know, while some of our friends on the right side of the aisle have said, forget it, I can't vote for Trump, I'm voting for Hillary. I, I'm not in that camp. I can't vote for Hillary either, in part because she's campaigning as Barack Obama's third term. And we've seen what a disaster that's been for our country domestically as he expands government in virtually every sphere. He empowers the bureaucracies. And then overseas, where he's withdrawn the United States from its leadership role in the world, it's been a disastrous seven years. It's hard to imagine having another four uh, like it after he leaves office. But the other reason to, to, I think, refuse to pull the lever for Hillary Clinton is she's an inveterate liar, and she's a creature of corruption. When you think about all the lies she's told over the course of her career, and then just think about the ones she's told since she became uh, since she began to campaign again this time, that she was dead broke, which is easily disprovable, <laughs> that she used, set up the email server just for convenience. You can go down and there are dozens of these. Right. But I think the one that bothers me most, and just to close on, on this, is the fact that she looked the families of the Benghazi fallen in the eyes and lied to them about what had happened, made a promise that they would go and that the administration would go and get the filmmaker who was responsible for the deaths of those four individuals. And then to make matters worse, when uh, we found out in the Benghazi hearing that, in fact, she was telling other diplomats, foreign leaders, that they knew it wasn't the film. It had nothing to do with the film. It was really a planned attack and it was Al Qaeda. Um, then after that was revealed to then basically point the finger at the families right. and suggest that she never said what she said, I think is, is utterly reprehensible and morally offensive and disqualifies her from being president of the United States. But other than that, she's doing great. Steve Hayes, thanks so much for joining <laughs> us on the podcast. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.